Hello and welcome to this edition of Nightlight. You would think that after Constantine had taken over the Roman Empire and imposed a form of governmentally sanctioned Christianity upon the empire, that there would have been no opportunity for the resurrection of paganism in at least high places. But that wasn't true after after Constantine's son passed off the scene. A pagan named Julian took the throne. He became known in church history by Christian historians as Julian the Apostate, not because he was ever a Christian who apostatized, but because he set his entire government as much as he could manipulate it to overthrow and uh, overthrow Christianity and, and restore paganism to its dominant place. He wasn't able to do it very successfully. Uh, and But one thing that he did do that uh, sadly worked was he completely set free all Christian groups because he knew that they would fight each other and become such enemies to one another that he would not have to do much to fight them himself. One historian says uh, of that era uh, that Julian knew that no beasts of the field were as ravenously dangerous as Christians could be when turned uh, against one another. Well, the reason I start with that sad point of church history is because we still see, we still see it in, in some forms. And uh, yet at the same time, there's the prayer of Jesus in John 17 that we all might be one as he and the Father are one so that the world will know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now that prayer in John 17 has to come to pass. Paul picks up on that same theme in the book of Ephesians where he makes reference to the, the fact that, not the hope, but the fact that eventually the whole body of Christ will come into the unity of faith, into oneness of heart, so that we come into maturity, one new man in the full stature of Christ. Uh, that's the destiny. It's not the goal. It's the destiny. It's the destination. Uh, it's a predetermined purpose that God will bring to pass. Now, how that's going to come to pass is anybody's speculation. There's a lot of ideas about it. They're all worth listening to. But uh, it's not going to happen because God just one day snaps his fingers and says, okay, I've had enough of you trying to work through your stuff. I'm just going to zap you into some kind of predestined robotic uh, identity. And uh, it'll all just be okay. It's not going to be that way. Nothing we do in life is that way. And the culmination of the eternal purposes of God in the church for the salvaging of the whole world will, will not be that way either. Jesus told us to take the gospel into the whole world and disciple the nations. Now, there's a big difference between discipling the nations and passing out tracts. See, some people have the idea, and I'm not against passing out tracts, I'm just saying the idea is in some people's minds that well, when the last person reads the last tract, that's when the end will come. You know, Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached into all the world for a witness to all nations, then the end will come, Matthew twenty four fourteen. Well, preaching the gospel of the kingdom to the nations is not the same thing as handing out tracts to individuals 
and getting them to uh, consider the claims of the gospel and even to be baptized. As important as all that is, that's not the same thing Jesus was talking about. He said, disciple the, the nations, transform the nations with the things that I've taught you. Teach them to observe all things which I commanded you. Now that's more than just getting baptized. That's more than just praying a sinner's prayer. Teaching them to observe all things that I'm commanding you. I just heard a story a few days ago. I need to follow up on it about a, a, a trend in third world missions work where uh, agricultural principles based on scripture are being applied to third world harvesting and planting and crop raising. And the, the fruit of this biblical redirection of their agriculture is yielding somewhere upwards of three to five times more yield than they were previously getting. And this has been so impacting and so impressive to the uh, the farmers in these areas that they're coming to the Lord. See, we we uh, we've so separated the kingdom and the gospel and heaven and earth from one another that we really have, uh, in some ways, a disembodied, otherworldly concept of what it means to take the gospel of the kingdom to all the nations. But you can't have an otherworldly view of taking the gospel of the kingdom to the nations because the whole the whole thing is about thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So everything believers do in the earth has to do with bringing the kingdom to the nations, whether it's agriculture or preaching, or music, or science, or playing soccer, or uh, you, you name it. There's not one realm, one part of human experience that uh, is not under the lordship of Jesus. And uh, I think many of us are beginning to see that and beginning to learn it and beginning to put it into practice in our lives rather than the idea of flying out of here and escaping the, the call that was placed upon us to take the kingdoms of this world for uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I'm, I'm starting with that is that whenever you have that reality, there's a, there's a conflict. There's a clash of kingdoms. There's violence. There's, uh, there's pressure. There's pushback. And there's resistance. There's conflict. And I left us off kind of hanging at the end of our last session together talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and particularly what some call the prayer language, which is different from the gift of tongues. I won't get into the details of that right now, but uh, the ability to pray in the Spirit uh, what what does that mean, and what does that have to do with where we are now in uh, in church history and in the life of the church? And in order to address this in a way that I hope will be helpful to us, I want to go back and reminisce a little bit. Now, for some of you, uh, you're old enough to be reminiscing with me. For others of you, this will not be reminiscing, it will be a history lesson. Uh, you, some of you weren't even born when these things happened. But a lot of the time we don't know where we are unless we know where we've been. And we can't see where we're to go unless we get our bearings based on where we've been. And so I want to try to get across in this time together today what I saw the Holy Spirit doing and, and now in retrospect from some almost 50 years later where I believe the Holy Spirit has brought us from and why things had to go the way they went and what that may have to do with where we are now and where we're headed. So that's kind of a mouthful, but let's try to jump into it and begin. Many of you know that I was raised in the Bible Belt and I was raised in southwest Mississippi in a, a part of uh, Christian southern culture 
where everybody went to church, everybody was mostly Baptist or Methodist. We were Presbyterian. Our, our Highland Scottish background kind of made that inevitable to some degree. But by the time I was 12, our Presbyterian church had lost a great deal of its momentum, if it ever had much. And so our parents moved us to the Baptist church when I was 12, where I was very happy to go because there were more of my friends there, etc. But that was the beginning of a trend that the Holy Spirit would lead me into as I got older. I began to get my first taste of what it, what it was to have uh, different traditions, different denominational points of view, different emphasis, uh, different ways of worshiping. Uh, and, and so every one of those different encounters became a portion of an ongoing uh, education from the Lord in the way he deals with people and culture and nations and so by the time I was in my early 20s, I had come into close contact not only with the denominations I just mentioned from my own boyhood, but I encountered uh, the charismatic movement and the Anglican uh, circles and Catholic, Roman Catholic circles. I encountered the Jesus people and the, the, the move of the Holy Spirit among the hippies and among the street people. And uh, the black churches and Hispanic churches, and I, I, I got a taste of what the whole body of Christ was like, and all of its various uh, different colors and tones and emphases. Uh, those emphases were secondary always to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. If it was a valid expression of the body of Christ, Jesus was always at the center. Uh, and uh, as it should be. But let me back up a little bit and explain how I got from the Presbyterian, quiet, staid, stoic, Bible Belt uh, beginnings to where I eventually began to encounter all kinds of different parts of the body. Uh, by the time I was 15, 16 years old, I, I, was, I was starved to understand why what I saw in the book of Acts was not happening in the life of the church. I began to ask uncomfortable questions, not because I was anything special, just because I was hungry. I began to make noise like any hungry kid makes. And I was hungry to understand and to know God. And uh, when I would go to different pastors, they were good men. They were well-meaning men. I, I don't want to ever give the impression that they weren't doing the best they knew. But in the, in the cultural climate of the 1960s, uh, where the church was uh, completely de uh, separate from one another uh, racially, and uh, denominational differences were very strong, uh, much stronger than they are in most of our circles today, uh, where you actually had people questioning. I remember conversations where people actually questioned whether uh, Methodists are really Christian or not, uh, etc. And uh, in the middle of all of that, I began to read the Bible for myself between my normal teenage rebellion and rock and roll and football and fist fights and immorality and all the rest of it. I began to read the book of Acts for myself and I began to see a movement of the presence of God among the people of the book of Acts that was just obviously not present in any Sunday morning experience I'd ever had. And so when I began to ask questions about it, I got the denominational answers. Now, one of the sad realities that we always have to face uh, when we start pulling back the curtain on this subject of the Holy Spirit and the move of the Holy Spirit, the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, 
is that for some reason, God doesn't seem to mind error becoming ensconced as doctrine and then being passed on for several generations as orthodoxy. I mean, I used to ask the Lord, I tried to be respectful, but I was kind of frustrated and angry over it. Why did you let me go this many years without me knowing these things? Why why was it so hidden? Why were people so brainwashed uh, as to be able to see it right there in the scriptures and completely ignore it or reinterpret it in such a way as to make it less than uh, valuable? to say the least. And one thing I began to learn over the years, I've just recently come to the conclusion, actually, that God is not in a hurry. God's not in a hurry, and God does not expect us to deal with all of the intricacies of life and death and uh, questions of spiritual depth in one lifetime. I mean, if you think you're going to get it all packaged up and neatly organized and categorized so that on the day of your death it's just sitting there on your uh, coffin in a a nice little packaged uh, summation, well, you're not thinking straight. And I know you don't think that. But yet we do tend to think that. We think, well, you know, uh, I've got to get all, all this stuff together in one lifetime. It's not going to happen. Uh, He who has begun a good work in us will complete it. But I don't think that means he's going to complete it in the 70 or 80 or 90 year lifespan uh, of of the average person. It's going to be an ongoing work that uh, continues to deal with us beyond the grave. I believe that's kind of obvious. But thankfully, because God's not in a hurry, he, he's very committed to our freedom. God really believes in freedom. And he wants us to have the room to make choices or make wrong choices or, sadly, even make no choices. And so we make no choices when we're satisfied with the status quo and we're happy to just stay inside the four walls of our denominational world And uh, whatever anybody believed in the previous generation is handed down to the next generation, not in a good way, but in a staid, stoic, dead, static way, so that the death that began in one generation just gets more dead in the next generation, more dead in the next generation. And this continues until somewhere along the line, someone gets hungry enough to start rocking the boat and asking the right questions, prompted, of course, by the Holy Spirit, because we couldn't do any of this without the Holy Spirit prompting it. For whatever reason the Lord had, uh, he, he tapped my shoulder and began to stir up questions in me that caused me to ask questions that stirred up all kinds of secret conflicts uh, behind closed doors with me and my elders and my pastors. and So I began the search, and uh, I began to go outside the, the four walls of my denominational world because I couldn't get any answers there. Now, sometimes people will take offense at the suggestion that any Christian who goes looking for more is suggesting that, well, you're saying Jesus is not enough. And that's kind of a, a funny way of responding because it's not, a, it's not a question of Jesus not being enough. It's a question of how Jesus is being presented in a limited way and how much that limited presentation of Jesus is leaving a huge deficit in what Jesus intended us to know and be and accomplish. So when we say we're looking outside uh, of our world, our denominational world or, or church world, and we're looking for more, it doesn't mean we're looking for more because Jesus is not enough. It means we're looking for more of Jesus. And so that began my search. Now, in the midst of this, 
God's got the funniest way of doing things sometimes. <clears throat> we lived only a, a few hundred feet from the grocery store. I could walk to it in 30 seconds practically. But my mom decided she wanted a milkman. She wanted a, a special delivery because she said we drank milk like it was water and uh, she was tired of always having to go to the store for it. So she uh, ends up getting on a milk route and the man who did the milk route <clears throat> was a man who was filled with the Spirit of God, full of joy. Uh, I remember how he sweated like he sweated bullets uh, going in and out of that truck every Monday and Thursday delivering milk to us and to the neighborhood. And uh, he always w was full of life and joy. And I was, of course, very curious of what the source of that joy could be. And so I began to ask questions, and he readily answered them and began to tell me what the Holy Spirit was doing uh, in the other parts of the world. I mean, I lived in kind of an isolated backwoods, southwest Mississippi, redneck bubble. And he brought life and hope into that bubble by describing the work of the Holy Spirit in all the denominations what was happening in the Jesus movement. I mean, we only had two channels, Channel 2 and Channel 9, and if you wanted to get Channel 4 in New Orleans, you had to go out and turn the antenna to adjust it to pick up uh, any of those other channels. So uh, news came on between uh, 5 and 6 in the afternoon, and that was it. There was no news, and they wouldn't have covered what what the Holy Spirit was doing if, if they had have covered uh, uh, any news coverage on that subject. So... Uh, I was fascinated and I was hungry. And so he, he eventually asked me to go to church with him. And I thought, well, where does he go to church? And then, well, we, we drove an hour to Baton Rouge because we had to drive that far to find what he was describing. And so I, it's really strange. I, I'm 16, by this time, 16 years old. I'm... <clears throat> You know, rock and roll and football and, you know, but let, uh, walk in church where they're behaving in a way that I'm not used to. And all of a sudden, I become this conservative, uh, hesitant, self-protective guy with my arms folded standing in the corner. It, it was religious spirit. Uh, nothing else you can say about it. It was just a, a religious spirit. All of a sudden, it wasn't what I was used to. And it, in, in spite of my deep hunger, it had to be delivered to me in a package that pleased my sensibilities. Well, it didn't please my sensibilities. There were, there were um, three-piece suits, and there were hippies, and there was blue jeans, and there was cutoffs, and there was sandals, and there was... Uh, black people and white people and Spanish people, and there were tambourines. I'd never seen a tambourine except uh, in in uh, movies with gypsies in them or something. And they had tambourines shaking, and the place was rocking, and uh, all of a sudden, I'm Mr. Conservative, theological conservative. It was coming out of my fleshly uh, proclivities toward what, what I'm comfortable with. It's funny. We're hungry for God, but then if God begins to show up in a way that we aren't used to, which would have to be so, or we wouldn't be hungry for something we don't have, then we get nervous. I guess that's just human nature. But anyway, I began for the first time to hear people praying in other tongues, uh, prayer around me. It was decently done and in order, but it was happy order. It was joyful exuberant, energetic order. And so the, the the hunger in me grew, and it wasn't long after my first encounters that I uh, borrowed my father's 1964 Chevy car that my little brother had burned the back seat out of by catching it on fire with a cigarette. And so it stunk so bad I had to drive all the way down to Baton Rouge with my head out the window, uh, dodging love bugs, and so I, I drove down there, and I went to the service on my own. And I was I was determined to to find 
what the Holy Spirit was after in me. And when I got there, uh, the service had already uh, been going on for a while. And uh, by this time, uh, the tambourines didn't bother me, and I sat in the front instead of the back. And when the altar uh, was opened for prayer, I slid into the altar like a baseball player trying to get to home plate. And the man that met me at the altar turned out to be a Roman Catholic uh, who loved Jesus with all of his heart. And that was a shattering experience for a Presbyterian Baptist kid. And so he looked me in the eye and said, what can I pray for you for? And I, I, I didn't know, I didn't know the right terminology. I said, I just, I just want, I just want to be filled with the Lord. And he laid his hands on me and I've never seen a vision. I've never had visions, open visions. But I did that day. I saw the Lord Jesus standing in front of me. I couldn't see his face. But I saw his torso. And this flood of golden light that poured from him. Not everybody has this experience. And that's why I, I, I tend not to tell experiences because like that. Because, uh, well, God never let me see anything like that. Well, he's never let me see it since. And uh, there's reasons why God disseminates these seeings the way he does. And maybe one day we'll get it explained to us. But uh, I guess I was such a messed up kid, I just needed, maybe I just needed that. But uh, the flood of the presence of the Lord that came into me was quite overwhelming. Now, when I say overwhelming, I don't mean it took me over. I could have run from it. I could have shut it down. I had the capacity to to do that, but why would anybody want to? And when I opened my mouth to say something, it didn't come out in English. And for about 45 minutes, it came out in another language. Now, again, why the Lord allowed this confirmation that I'm about to tell you, I don't really know, except maybe I just needed, I needed to have that support and that confirmation. But there was a woman present who was a professor at the University of uh, at LSU who was a native Chinese. And she told one of the pastors there at the altar that I was speaking in fluent Chinese, the same dialect that she had grown up with, and giving praise and thanks to God in another language. Now, so that should have been a wonderful transitioning moment in your life. Well, it was, but it wasn't all that wonderful. I got home that night and had the worst migraine headache I had ever had. And I had had terrible migraines since I was about five years old. Sometimes one, one was so bad at the age of six that I ripped a corduroy pillow open just from pain. And that night, uh, after this encounter, I had this terrible headache. Well, typical childish thinking on my part, uh, I'm saying to God, you know, what? Why are you letting this happen to me after I, you know, had this great encounter? And again, the Lord's not in a hurry. He didn't come down and explain to me and apologize and comfort me, and you know, He let me learn by slugging my way through this. That what had happened was there had indeed been an outpouring of the presence of God into me and it was a clash of kingdoms because there was a stronghold or many strongholds in me that were resistant to the purposes of God, resistance to, to the presence of God. See, one thing about a religious spirit is it will, it will tip its hat to God as long as the real God doesn't show up. And uh, only God can judge who, who in those circles is really his and who are just religious. Only God knows. That's why we dare not judge one another based on our limited in- insight. But I, I don't think it, it's wrong to judge the fact that I, I, was, in a, I was in a religious system 
that though there might have been very real people in it, and I know there were because I, I know them, I know their life and their testimony and the fruit in their life, but though they, they were there, for the most part, the system was abhorrent to God. It was racist. It was sexist. It was full of secret sin and immorality. Uh, everybody, you know, went to church on Sunday morning, but it made very little impact in the culture, in the lifestyle and behavior. And in intimacy with God was almost completely unknown uh, as an open subject for pursuit. And so God pursued me. Why me? Only he knows. But after that night of being filled with the Spirit, a great war began in my life. It says, I think it's Hebrews chapter 6, after you were illuminated, you entered a great fight of afflictions. And that phrase perfectly fit what I began to experience from the time of the infilling of the Spirit uh, forward. Uh, one, one thing that was manifestly present in my life from that day forward, besides this terrible conflict and war, the war in my emotions, war in my sexuality, war in my relationships, war in my uh, intellect, the one thing that was a constant was this prayer language. And sometimes uh, I would be so unable to express myself, so unable to put into words what I needed to say, what I longed to say, that it, it just poured out uh, in other tongues. And I noticed that the languages changed uh, that original oriental tongue was supplanted by other dialects and tongues that uh, I recognized to some degree in the sense that I I could tell the, the difference. I mean, I guess having a, a musical background, your ear can pick up nuances in language that vary. You can tell. You don't have to speak French or German to know the difference between French or German. And so there were times when the dialect was not something that I would recognize, and then other times when there, there, there was. But this fluency in tongues was not because of any superiority on my part. It was actually probably the opposite. I, I seemed to need more than the average person, maybe, uh, the, the strength and the support that came through this this practice. See, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he who prays in the Spirit prays uh, not with his understanding, but with his Spirit. And he says, when he prays in the Spirit, he strengthens or edifies himself. Well, I certainly needed to be strengthened and edified. Uh, the word edify means to be built up. It's just like you build an edifice, a building is an edifice. It, the word edify uh, there come, comes from that same root. It, it, and it doesn't mean to build up your ego. It means to build up your, your true self. And I needed that for lots of reasons. And I'll have more to say about that uh, in a few minutes. But uh, the conflict that was happening in me was a, a microcosmic picture of the greater conflict that was going to be happening in the entire culture. As the Holy Spirit came into me and stirred up a conflict inside of me between the Spirit and the anti-Christ forces that had taken root in me, in the same way that began to happen in the culture. And so the outpouring of the Spirit began to affect racism. It began to affect sexuality. It began to affect uh, intellect. It began to uh, challenge the, the structures of religious systems that had become uh, arthritic and refusing to yield to the uh, oil of the Spirit to, to loosen it up so it could begin to move in, in power and agility again. Jesus said, uh, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. 
the old wineskins serve their purpose, but when they're no longer capable of carrying the wine, they no longer have any purpose. Old wineskins can be renewed if they'll yield to the uh, oiling necessary to loosen them up and make them pliable again, but sadly, most old wineskins just burst when the new wine comes in. And that's what began to happen. There began to be breaches and splits and broken relationships. And let me say uh, here clearly, there there was fault on both sides. Uh, I remember one of my professors in school used to look over his glasses at us freshmen and he'd say, I've never met a humble young person in my life. And of course, if we got angry for him saying that, uh, he, we would be proving his point. If we didn't get angry and tried to humbly submit to the truth of it, we were still proving his point because he knew we would be faking it. And so this lack of humility coupled with a lack of wisdom, coupled with a lack of theological understanding, uh, caused a lot of unnecessary conflict from our side. I was... Uh, headstrong and angry. I was angry that the church had not shown me these things, that they had ignored these things. And so I tended to uh, challenge authority, not in a spirit of uh, searching for truth, but out of anger and rebellion. Uh, I I was so busy defending the Bible verses that I happened to like like they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, other Bible verses like that. Uh, I was so busy defending those verses, I completely ignored other verses equally as important, such as don't ever speak disrespectfully to an older person, but speak humbly uh, and with respect as if you were addressing a parent. Uh, I didn't notice that verse. That verse didn't fit in to my uh, agenda. And so I left a trail of people who were filled with the Holy Spirit and a trail of people who were filled with self-righteous arrogance. And Sometimes there was a mixture. Uh, James says bitter water and sweet water should not come out of the same spigot, but it did come out of the same spigot because that one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit in coming into us, he doesn't come into us because we are pure. He comes in to purify and to cleanse and to uh, purge out everything that is opposite to his character. And so there was a great deal of purging that had to happen in me and in my generation as well as the there, there needed to be the purging of, of uh, staid, stodgy, dead traditionalism that was satisfied with the status quo that had to be purged out, needed to be, obviously. But uh, this led us into the, uh, from the Jesus movement of the 60s to the char- what was called the charismatic renewal of the 70s. Not that it was divided by decades, but I'm just saying that for delineation's sake. By the time we got to the late 1970s, there was no denomination on the planet that had not had an effective encounter with the Holy Spirit along with the conflicts that I just described. Race was beginning to be affected so that Christians began to worship together, black and white, uh, Hispanic, all the races. See, one of the characteristics of the coming of the true Holy Spirit that you see in Acts chapter 2 is all these people from all these various places uh, were affected by the coming of the Spirit so that they were made one in the Messiah. Uh, The middle wall of partition was broken down and there was no race. Uh, Another thing that began to happen was a recognition of the ministry of the Spirit through women. Uh, this idea of the dominance of the male over the female uh, in church circles that is so often misinterpreted and misunderstood 
and sadly, not just misunderstood, but twisted on purpose in order to uh, keep women in a certain uh, posture in the eyes of men who uh, have some misogynistic problems they need to be healed of. That all began to be addressed. Uh, not by uh, sermons as much as by just experiences. And of course this terrified the people that, that find their security in intellectualism. You see, Western Christianity has really become in, in many ways an, an intellectualized, castrated cult of denominational prejudices. Uh, that I, I know I, need, I probably need to unpack that phrase, but I, I don't have time to if I want to cover the things I really feel like we need to cover here. But let me say that one more time. It, it, in many circles, it has become an intellectualized but castrated. What I mean by that is it's got a big head but very little life ability, ability to reproduce, very very little ability to penetrate and bring forth new life. And so uh, a lot of Christian movement in America over the last X number of years has been just a movement of people migrating from denomination to denomination or from church experience to church experience. And then as the denominational labels begin to diminish and rightly so, it began to be just kind of a smorgasbord of Christianese flavors. Then you, you don't like this church, you go to that one. And uh, very little relationship is built, very really, little life is shared, and uh, very little evangelism, I mean real evangelism, life-changing, life-transforming uh, encounter with Jesus that causes a real change in character and a change in lifestyle, that began to diminish. And so by the 1980s, we began to experience a kind of muddy mixture of all kinds of Christian ideas mixed with New Age ideas, mixed with false religious ideas, mixed with cultural ideas. And uh, on the positive side, Music, for instance, began to take on more of a uh, a flavor of uh, some people would say, well, the flavor of the world is what you're trying to say, Clay. Well, yeah, flavor of the world. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus came to save the world. And there is no realm in the world he is not Lord over. And so it's perfectly understandable if a if a reggae guy comes to know the Lord, his worship and praise may come out in a reggae form of music. He's not going to get saved in, you know, in, in uh, down there in Jamaica or the islands. And then the day after he gets saved, he's going to come in with a three-piece suit and sing uh, like George Beverly Shea with organ music, with all due respect to George Beverly Shea and to organ music. But... I mean, one of the terrible errors of the missionary movement was the attempt to make everybody English, to make everybody American, to make everybody Western. And that's a whole other subject. But the point is, uh, there was a good side to the new music that began to come forward, but then there, there was the bad side where there was no discernment. And so by the mid-1980s, we had Christian rock and roll bands that behaved on stage like they were worshiping Baal. And, uh, uh, you know, there are some things you can't sanctify. You can't sanctify Baal worship. You can't sanctify uh, erotic movements of the body that are obviously meant to seduce and eroticize uh, the, the the presentation, uh, but that began to happen, and so but but you know what? God's not in a hurry. He's very patient, and he is committed to our ability to discern and choose 
based on the wisdom that we are pursuing that's coming from him because he doesn't want robots. And so every every few years or decades, we have what I guess some people call revival, but I don't think God calls it revival. I think what we call revival is where God interposes his reality into our unreality and awakens us to the fact that we're living in unreality. And in that awakening, we begin to pursue him with a heart uh, that is committed to, 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 to obtain whatever it is we know we don't have. That's what happened to me at 15, and it's what happened to millions of others. So that now, I don't know what the number is. I, I read different numbers, but there are hundreds of millions of believers throughout the world that pray in other tongues. Now, let me back up a little bit and say this about that. We thought in the 1970s that uh, the Holy Spirit had come, restored the praying in other tongues, and, and, and restored the gifts of the Spirit. And that obviously that's the last thing that needs to be done before the rapture. And so we fully expected to fly out of here before 1980. And uh, as a result of that, many young misguided Christians failed to pursue education, failed to pursue uh, uh, gainful employment, uh, failed to establish themselves in, in a way that would be meaningful to society and to their families. Many of them became deeply disillusioned. Uh, not because God deceived anybody. God didn't deceive anybody. We did what we've done all through church history. We've taken what God gave, put it in our own context of definitions that suit our flesh, wrapped a wall of denominational uh, Phariseeism around it, demanded that everybody come inside that wall and bow to our idols in Jesus' name, but bow to our idols, and then uh, God has to patiently tear that wall down and let those old wineskins burst until people are crying out for new wineskins. It happens over and over and over. One of my professors used to say, rightly so, that uh, a denomination is a tombstone raised over the commemoration of a dead move of God. So what was a valid move of God through Martin Luther became Lutheranism. And what was a great move of God through John Wesley became Methodism. And what, and I could just go right down the list. I'm not trying to insult Lutherans or Methodists. I'm just illustrating that that's what we do. And so we've got versions of it now uh, all over the body of Christ. Now, Jesus' prayer in John 17 that we all might be one has to come to pass. Paul says in Ephesians that we will become one new man manifesting the full stature of Christ in the earth. That's our destiny. That's how this thing is going to move. It's not a goal we're working toward. It is the purpose of God. He has preordained and predestined and therefore will happen. How it's going to happen, I don't know. God's not in a hurry. And he'll take a lifetime, and if we die off, he'll raise up our kids, and if they mess around with it and don't take it seriously, he'll raise up the next generation. He's not in a hurry, and he's not throwing anybody away, but he's not, uh, he's, he's not letting his purposes be supplanted by our tombstones, uh, and dead religion, uh, raised up in his name. Well, that's been going on now for generations, but it's reached a point now where people are really, in some circles, really nervous about this. I can understand the nervousness. I told you, when I was 15 years old, I found myself having a big streak of conservatism in me that was very afraid of tambourines. Uh, who would have thought it? didn't take me long to get free of it, but I had to recognize it was something I needed to get free from before I could get free from it. What is it going on in you that the Holy Spirit wants you to get free from? Uh, now, 
I know that could open all kinds of worm, cans of worms that I don't have time to address. So let me just get to my closing point here. Why would God establish praying in other tongues? What's the purpose of it? Now, see, I mentioned the intellectualizing of the church. Not only are we over-intellectualizing the gospel so that it's really, in some circles, nothing more than an academic pursuit of information rather than a living experience and relationship. Not only have we done that, we've also disconnected the body from the spirit. We are Gnostic. Oh, we would say doctrinally we're not Gnostic, but I'm not concerned so much about doctrine as I am practice. If your doctrine doesn't produce right practice, there's something wrong with your doctrine. Or you've managed to separate your doctrine from your practice uh, in in a schizophrenic kind of way. Uh, People really do think like Gnostics. They think their body is evil and their spirit is good. And that's why God wants us to die. We die so we can go to heaven. That people think that they're like peanuts, you know, that you break the shell off and God wants the peanut inside. He doesn't want the shell. No, 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 no. The shell, there is no shell. Your body and your spirit are one. God, God is going to raise your body from death so that the spirit and the body can be put back together. Well, this misunderstanding of spirit versus body or flesh versus spirit or however you want to say it has produced all kinds of wrong conceptions about reality and so one of the things people used to argue about concerning tongues was well what good is it if you don't understand it see see the assumption in that if you understand it then it's valid and if you don't understand it it's not valid i got a question is there anything else in the mystery of god that you don't understand? If you say no, you understand it all, then you're in need of therapy. If you say yes, then you're going to have to qualify your statement that it can't be valid if I can't understand it. There's all kinds of things I don't understand. But I sure wouldn't presume presume to say it's invalid just because Clay McLean tiny little mind can't comprehend it and yet i had many a pastor argue me uh, argue with me uh, in those early days that tongues can't be valid because paul said they quote paul in first corinthians 14 they quote him totally out of context and they would slice the verse in half and only quote the part they wanted paul said uh, he would rather speak five words in a known language than a thousand words in an unknown tongue. No, that's not what Paul said. Paul said, I thank God I speak with tongues more than all of you. That's what he said. But then he qualified it by saying, yet in public I would rather speak five words with a known language than a thousand in an unknown tongue. But in private, Paul says, I pray in tongues more than all of you. When did Paul find time to pray in tongues even more than the Corinthians did? Well, he must have prayed in tongues all the time. He must have done it just kind of under his breath all the time. I do that all the time. I do it driving. I do it when I'm not doing anything else with my mouth. I'm praying in the Spirit. What is that for? I don't really know. I I don't have to know. My father gave me this gift. I I remember people people saying things like, well, you know, tongues is the least of the gifts. Well, first of all, there's not one Bible verse anywhere that says tongues is the least of the gifts. That's not in the Bible. Uh, But the other thing is, uh, on Christmas morning, how would you feel if one of your children walked over handed you back the smallest gift and said, this is the least of the gifts. I don't think I want this one. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, Poor in spirit means you're grateful to take any gift that you're given. So uh, though I don't want anybody, I mean this, I don't want anybody hearing this to feel that I'm saying you better pray in tongues or you're you're not fulfilling God's will for your life. I'm not saying that. But I do have to ask this question. 
If you have rolling around inside of you arguments against tongues, like these vapid, unscriptural arguments that I've just described, wouldn't that be clear enough evidence that there is an unnecessary resistance going on in you, keeping you from moving into a realm where you could receive humbly in a childlike way whatever the Father wants to give you? If he doesn't give you tongues, he may want to give you something else. But uh, I personally thank God I speak in tongues more than the Corinthians did. And I do it every day. And I find the more I pray in the Spirit, the clearer my mind is, and the more fluent I am in English on certain issues, especially in conflicts with troubled people. And so it's a great gift. But that's not all that's going on in in praying in other tongues. It does edify and strengthen me personally. It does help me be more fluent in English issues that are conflicting. It, But it also has something to do with spiritual warfare. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, diverse kinds of tongues. And I've known over the years when I would be praying in the Spirit, sometimes the language would change and I would be aware that I was no longer addressing God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, when you pray in tongues, you give thanks to God. But I know there are times when I'm not giving thanks to God. I am speaking by the Spirit against something evil. I described one example of that a few months ago. Uh, when I, if you remember the, the nightlight where I described my prayer encounter the night of the presidential election. If you want to go back and review that, uh, this awareness that I was in battle, I was in warfare. Uh, I wasn't focused on the devil, but I was standing by the power of the Spirit in a stance against principalities and powers and decreeing in their face what God was bringing forth uh, in the Spirit. Now, uh, Michael the archangel, it says in the book of Jude, did not bring a railing accusation against the devil, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. I mean, I'm not, I'm not taking on principalities and powers in my own strength. That's stupid. Uh, in fact, it actually uses the word stupid there in Jude. Blacks. Michael did not bring a railing railing accusation, the word is blacks, a stupid railing accusation means to do something uh, foolish uh, on the face of it because you're up against something you can't fight on your own strength. But Michael, even Michael, the archangel, does not consider himself capable of doing that. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. He stands in the power of the name of the Lord. Uh, That's what I was doing. And I know that that kind of thing happens sometimes in praying in the Spirit. Another thing that happens, and I'll just mention this, and it's too large probably to to do, but I've got to bring it in in this context. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, "Our, our spirit is groaning. But he also says creation is groaning. And then he says the Holy Spirit in us is groaning. Three kinds of groaning there. The spirit is groaning, and the idea here is birth pangs, travail, bringing forth, giving birth to something. And Paul in that context says, we groan in the spirit. We're we're giving birth to something in the spirit. What What are we giving birth to? Well, the creation is longing for the children of God to manifest our sonship so that in the manifesting of our sonship, our full, mature sonship, creation will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. And so creation is groaning to be delivered. The Holy Spirit is helping us groan with groanings which we can't utter which we can't put into articulate speech, which is another form of prayer in the Spirit. And then we groan in cooperation with the Holy Spirit on behalf of creation. Now, this is not a foreign concept to you. You have prayed prayers that had no language. Have you ever cried? Have you ever laughed? Laughter is a language that doesn't use English. Tears are a language that doesn't use English. 
That's not, that's not a mystery. That's not hard to understand. Now, I don't want this to be a, a, a stringent, striving, tug-of-war of opinions. I, I, I've told you what happened to me. I've shared the testimony of where the Holy Spirit took me personally, but I looked around one day and realized I was nobody special. I was in the company of millions, multiplied millions of people who were in similar circumstances, some far more dramatic uh, than than mine. Mine was pretty dramatic. To me, it was very dramatic. To to whoever it happens to, it's pretty dramatic. But it's all part of the great symphony that the Holy Spirit is leading us into. Now, where are we now? Well, Joel chapter 2 says, It will come to pass in the last days that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And upon my servants and my handmaids in that day will I pour out of my spirit. And it shall come to pass that whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. And again in Acts chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 says will be completed at the end of the age. We're on the verge of a greater, far greater outpouring. 